morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to the prophet Zechariah as we continue in our series, the Book of the Twelve. We are kind of quickly coming to the end of this as we just have Zechariah this morning and Malachi next week. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, it's on page 745, Zechariah on page 745. Well, as you're turning over there, let me just kind of begin. If, if you know me well, if you know me well enough, you know that probably one of my favorite all-time book series as well as movie series is The Lord of the Rings. Um, just so I know my audience here, any, any Lord of the Rings fans? You don't have to be like total geeks about it, but yeah, okay, you read the books, you see the movie, so uh, most of you know about Lord of the Rings, and that's not surprising because uh, Lord of the Rings is a global phenomenon, right? Since it came published back in the, was it late 50s, early 60s, uh, so worldwide, and then it won Best Picture in 2004 for, for Academy Awards, and uh, actually won uh, the Book of the Century. So the Lord of the Rings is a global phenomenon. And two things that I really like about the Lord of the Rings, number one, is that a lot of the themes, not all the themes, mind you, but the important themes of Lord of the Rings tend to map on to the really important themes that we find in the Bible. Now, for some people, that, that's surprising to them, but re- if you know kind of the backstory of J.R.R. Tolkien, it's not surprising because Tolkien was a devout Catholic. As a matter of fact, Tolkien um, introduced his, was instrumental actually in converting his friend C.S. Lewis from being an atheist into an avowed evangelical Christian, which is why if you look at early editions of Lewis's Mere Christianity, his, his kind of apologetic for the Christian faith, it's de- dedicated to none other than J.R. Tolkien. So they, they were really good friends and Tolkien led him to leave atheism and consider the claims of Christ. So that's the first reason I do enjoy Lord of the Rings, because a lot of that, that maps on. The second thing, though, that I find is something unusual about Lord of the Rings, and, and in similar ways is that people about the Bible, and that is fans of the series, whether it's the book or the movie, kind of like people who are fans of the Bible, tend to miss the point of, the main point of the story. So what I mean by that is if you ask somebody, what's the main point of the Lord of the Rings? And there's a good chance they're going to tell you, well, it's, it's, it's about the power of the one ring, right? And if they are a Christian, they'll say something like how Tolkien was trying to communicate to us the ring is like sin and how you, you think you want it and you grasp it and it pollutes your soul and it just destroys you. That's usually what people have to say about it. Um, and it's kind of the same way with the Bible. You ask people, what's the main point of the Bible? And they'll point to something that's true, like in Lord of the Rings, but because it's true, it kind of blinds them to the main point of the Bible. So you ask, what's the main point of the Bible? And people will say, well, it's, it's you know, the, the, the power of sin or the power of self-deception, the uprightness of righteous living, the obedience for, or the rewards for obedience, all true things, but not the main point. So if I were to ask, to, to illustrate, what is the main point of the story of Lord of the Rings? Okay. It's, it's not the power of the ring. The main point of the Lord of the Rings is that you need the right king. The main drive between Tolkien's saga is not so much about the ring of power, even though it's called the Lord of the Rings. The main point of the story is that until you have the right king upon the throne, all the land will sit in despair and darkness. Until the king comes, everything else is fleeting and momentary because it will all be swept away by darkness. 
That is the point of the Lord of the Rings. And just like with the Bible, those other things may be important, but the main point of the Bible is not all that other stuff. The main point of the Bible is actually the main point of the Lord of the Rings, that until you have the right king, very little will matter because it all is swept away by darkness. So I love the way Tolkien put that in there, and most people don't even realize it. So, so often we can get caught up on the detail, we miss the main points. With the Bible, if you get all the other things about the Bible but miss the main point that it's about having the right king, you'll understand little about the Bible. And likewise, if you get that it's about making sure you have the right king, all the other details, while they might be interesting, are not as important because you've got the main point. Now, last week in our study of Haggai, Haggai began to hint at that, didn't he? Well, Zechariah makes this a primary point in his book. Now, by now, you should be in Zechariah on page 745, or if you're using a pew Bible, let me tell you a little bit about him. Zechariah, if you have read it this week, you know it is the longest of the minor prophets, and Zechariah is also the most obscure of the minor prophets, and that is saying a lot in our study of the minor prophets. Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. Uh, they both ministered at exactly the same time in 520 BC. You could even say that both Zechariah and Haggai worked in tandem together to accomplish God's purposes of encouraging his people to rebuild the temple and recommit themselves to the Lord. In fact, the first eight chapters of Zechariah is all about encouraging them from a different perspective of Haggai, of course, to rebuild the temple. Now, Zechariah also is a book about second chances, which is what, what, what repentance is all about, which is what the return from exile is about as well, about having second chances. And I love the way that the Old Testament ends. You know, it's not quite there, but we got one more book, and the Old Testament ends, and it ends with this call that second chances are possible. I don't know about you, but I, have, I, I need as many of the second chances that God will give. Amen, indeed. If you've made mistakes, if you have done things you regret and you can't go back and fix them, you know how important a second chance is. And Zechariah makes it very clear that the Lord is a Lord of second chances. But it's also a book about God's power. I think that ties in because so often when we mess things up, it, it requires a strength beyond our own individually. Imagine that on a corporate scale, a national scale. It requires power we don't have to make things right. So Zechariah is also a book about God's power, which is probably why Zechariah's favorite title for Yahweh, you're familiar with Yahweh being a, the word for the name for God in the Old Testament. Zechariah's favorite title for Yahweh throughout this book is the Lord of Hosts. Zechariah uses that title more than any of the minor prophets combined use it together. Zechariah uses Lord of Hosts. Now, that, that, the, the title Lord of Hosts doesn't mean that God is good at throwing parties, like, oh man, he's a great host. He's, he's a good host. In fact, he's the Lord of Hosts. That's not what Lord of Hosts means. Lord of Hosts refers to the fact that Yahweh is the commander of heaven's armies. He oversees the hosts of heaven's armies. 
He is the General MacArthur of his time. He is the Commander-in-Chief. He's the Pontius Maximus. When the people return to God, and when God returns to them, when this happens in its fullest, everything will become as it should. Now, if you've looked through Zechariah, you know we don't have the time to read the whole book. We actually don't even have time to read half the book. But let me give you three important verses that kind of highlight the, the, the engine behind Zechariah and then give you our two points as we begin to study this amazing prophet. So the first verse to look at is Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore say to them, declares the Lord of hosts, or is that title, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, if you're someone who notes your Bible, just write down how many times he refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. Keep in mind, it, this is not a, an accident that to a people who have just come out of exile, way beyond their political national zenith, who are living under the power of someone else, who feel like their future is not in their hands, it's not a coincidence that God chooses to use a title reminding them that He is in control of all things. 53 times. It shows up three times right in this one verse alone. So that's the first important message. Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. About halfway through the book, the second verse I want you to really understand is this. He says, and as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations... Keep in mind, for seven decades, they were in exile. They were the laughingstock. They were destroyed, and so they were a byword of cursing. O house of Judah and the house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. And I love that too, friends. Notice that. God does not save his people necessarily just for their own benefit. The same truth holds true to us today. God does not do what he does in our life necessarily for our exclusive benefit. I will save you and you shall be a blessing, he writes. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. He might have got that from Haggai. Remember, Haggai said that three times, be strong, be strong, be strong, and Zechariah says the same thing. So that's the second verse. The last verse to kind of understand Zechariah, Zechariah 14, 9 and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. What he means by that is there will be no usurpers to the throne. There'll be no challengers to his power. There will be no other gods or idols that people will bow down to. The Lord will be one. It will be very clear that he is the only God. You think about it, friends. From this time forward in the people of God's existence, the scourge of idolatry which has plagued them from the moment they left Egypt. You recall as soon as they came out of Egypt, what did they end up bowing down to? A golden calf for thousands of their years, for centuries of their existence. Idolatry plagued them until the exile. We know from this point on, the Israelites were a firmly, they were always, were supposed to be monotheistic, but they were always following after other gods. But from the exile on, they were firmly a monotheistic people. They no longer went after other gods. Because of God's severe judgment, they had learned that lesson. Here are two points that we will look at the book this morning. Number one, chapters one through eight, the return of the people, because that's what we're going to see, and the blessings that God brings to them. And then chapters nine through 14, the return of the king. Well, with that, everyone should be in the prophet Zechariah. Let's read the first six verses. Well, I'll read them and you can follow along. Zechariah chapter one, verses one through six. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, 
So 520 BC, just like Haggai, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us with us. Friends, the good news is that the people of God did repent. That, that six verses, you couldn't have a more succinct summary of how God's people believed and behaved from the point of the exiting uh, Egypt, or actually entering the promised land, up until this point. This is a beautiful summary. They constantly would not listen to the word of God, but the good news is that they did repent. Their story, like anyone's story who puts their faith in Christ, does not end in isolation, exile, or shame. It ends with return, renewal, and restoration. Friends, that, that is what we've just read, the good news of God's faithfulness. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. Although isolation, exile, and shame is the path we choose when we choose to sin, when we choose to walk away from the Lord, from His Word, from His people, we choose to walk away from the very fountain of life. But if we've learned anything from these 10 weeks of studying the Minor Prophets, friends, if we've learned anything, we've learned that God is faithful that his word is powerful, and thankfully, his spirit is relentless. Now, look at what he says there in chapter 1, verse 6. Did you notice that? But my words, he says, and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Didn't they, they kind of tackle them down? Didn't they overtake it, overtake them? Sounds a lot like what Hosea said. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord said, Therefore I have hewn them, I've, I've cut them down by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Friends, God's word had been going out and going out. Return to me, come back. You don't have to live this way. Come back to me, I will come back to you. His words constantly came out, came at them, and they ignored them, and they ignored them, and finally... It took exile and 300 years for them to finally make some progress in returning to the Lord. Now, I say some progress because while we saw last week they were starting to come back to the things of God, man, we are a fickle people, aren't we? It wasn't quite the deep repentance it probably should be. And you'll see, you'll learn more about that when we study Malachi next week, that God constantly, even though they had repented, it wasn't a full repentance, and God kept calling them to be different. Here's the good news with that. Aren't you glad God doesn't wait for your repentance to be perfect before he comes to you? 
I am so glad when God says, return to me, and I'll return to you, he's not looking for all the way over here. He's just looking, hey, are you at least facing in my orientation? Because that's, I'll take that. Just return to me any movement this way, and I am right there. And so that's what the people of God did, and God began to bless them. But there was still more work to be done. Friends, we have to realize that God's word to us today is the same. You can repent. You can come back. You can turn it around. Don't let it take isolation. And you you can define those words however it might be, the fracturing of your relationships. Don't let it take exile. You've you've damaged so many friendships. You've lived a way that, that people around you who love you cannot embrace. Don't let it take isolation and exile and shame. Don't let it take another three months, three weeks. Don't let it take another three hours. If you have harbored sin against the Lord, if you want to come back, he says, return to me. I will return to you just like that. And it's not to backhand you. It's not to discipline you, but to embrace you and to restore you, and to bless you, because that is the heart of God. That is the heart of God. And we see in these following chapter, excuse me, verse six of chapter one, starting in chapter one, verse seven, all the way through the end of chapter six, uh, Zechariah has eight different visions that really show a reinvigorated Israel. Now, I can't uh, get into all of those uh, visions because each one of those could make their own Sunday morning, but let me just give you a sense of those visions. If you've already read Zechariah, maybe this helped understand them. If you haven't read it, this will help you understand it as you read it this week. The first vision that we see in, in chapter one, verse seven through 17, it really sets the stage for all the others that show a reinvigorated Israel. There are these four horsemen that patrol the earth, uh, and if you, if you hear that phrase, you might think of four horsemen of the apocalypse, that this is very different. These are four horsemen who are traveling throughout the globe. Oftentimes, the number four appears in Zechariah, like a lot of what's called apocalyptic literature, and the four stands for, scholars believe it could be the four points of the compass, referencing God's comprehensive ability and kingdom over the earth. So the first vision is that these four horsemen go out throughout the earth, seeing the condition of things, and God wants to reinvigorate Israel. In the second vision, chapter 1, verse 18 to 21, it is basically a judgment on the nations and empires that have treated God's people harshly. And he's showing his sovereignty even over all kingdoms. The third vision there in chapter 2, verse um, Third vision, chapter two, verse one to 13, is this beautiful picture of a man who's got like a measuring line and his job is to measure the city of Jerusalem. And and basically in conversation with Zechariah, he says, this is impossible. The the prosperity and blessing of God's people is gonna overflow the city. There's no room for all the people in the city. We need people outside the city walls now because there's just no more, there's no room for all God's blessings for his people. The next vision, chapter three, is a beautiful vision of God reestablishing Joshua as the priest. And we can't read it in its full, but there's this picture of what the Bible teaches our justification by faith. Joshua standing in filthy rags, and God says, take those rags off of them and puts clothes, robes of righteousness on Joshua. Beautiful picture of what happens to us in Christ. He takes our filthy rags from us and he gives to us robes of righteousness. The fifth vision in chapter four, God is encouraging Zerubbabel, the governor, 
He says, all the opposition that you see behind, in front of you, the mountains of opposition, they'll be flattened out like the plains of Megiddo. But it won't be because of your strength and your wisdom, but it's because of my strength working through you. The sixth vision, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, this one reminds me a lot like Ezekiel because uh, Zechariah sees a huge flying scroll, not a flying squirrel, flying scroll about 30 feet long, flying through the land with the covenant written upon it as a reminder that God's authority, God's covenant word still has authority over his people and all covenant breakers will be judged. And that's exactly what you see in vision seven is wickedness being removed from the land, taken away from the people. And in the final vision, chapter six, it, it kind of comes full circle with the riders on their horses who declare God's ownership over the earth. Now, taken as a whole, all these visions point to God's reinvigorating his people. The same God who controls the destinies of nations is able to rebuild the city, able to restore the temple, able to renew worship, able to remove wickedness, making a clear path for his people. But here's the thing, we, we can't get triumphalistic about it because as chapter three reminds us, we didn't get our righteousness because of our own faithfulness. The righteousness was given to us. But all these visions show what God is doing and his plan won't be thwarted. Now. We move to chapter seven and eight. So if you're in your Bible, go to chapter seven and eight. And, and really, these cha two chapters must be read in light of these visions. And basically what's happening is, in chapter seven, they come to, um, to Zechariah, they come to Jerusalem, and they inquire of the priests if they should still observe the fasts. Because they would observe fast on the day that Jerusalem fell, when the temple was destroyed as a sign of mourning, and the Lord basically tells them, you don't need to fast anymore. This is not a time of fasting, it's a time of feasting, because I am blessing my people. But I want to draw your attention to something in particular in chapter 8. Go to chapter 8, read verses 20 to 23. Here's what Zechariah, this is the, the prophecy here from Zechariah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Verse 22, Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I love this. In those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So what's going on? Did you see that? He's saying, look, there's coming a time when the nations, the peoples of the world are going to say, hey man, let's go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna go, you should go. And 10 men from different nations are gonna grab the robe of a Jew and say, we wanna go with you, we heard God's with you. I can't help but think of Acts chapter two, Acts chapter five, the entire book of Acts, what's going on in the book of Acts. The Gentiles are literally reading the Jewish scriptures and saying, who is this talking about? Uh, who, uh, tell me about the Lord. And we see, well, let's see. I know in first hour we have our Jewish friend that got, became converted. Basically, this is all of us if you're not a Jew. This was all of us. Do you remember your conversion? I remember mine. It was kind of similar to this. Somebody tell me about this gospel. 
because I know I need something. And the Lord's prophesying that the Gentiles come in. I love the picture. They're grabbing 10 guys, grabbing the robe of a single Jew. We want to go with you because God's bringing them in. But now, what's this turn here? What's this turn? For the turn, I want you to go to uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. And then we're going to go to Zechariah chapter 6. But we'll start with 3. And while you guys are doing that, I'm getting ready to go to Isaiah, because we're going to jump to Isaiah in a little bit, but hold on. So in in Zechariah chapter 3, this is the the vision of Joshua the priest, right, being, kind of being renewed, the priesthood being renewed, Zechariah 3.8, so this is what the Lord says, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. So what he's saying is, Joshua, the priesthood, we're reestablishing this. You priests are a sign. What are you a sign of? Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. That's an odd name to name somebody. But he says, Joshua, you priests that I've reestablished, that I've made righteous, you merely are a sign of my servant, the one named the branch. Now look at chapter 6, verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So the Lord is saying, look, the branch, my servant, the branch is coming. And he's going to build this temple, and he's going to sit on the royal throne. That's what makes the turn in chapter 8 where everyone's coming to the Jews and saying, tell us about this salvation. There's this servant that has shown up and changed everything. But now listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Hundreds of years before Zechariah, Isaiah says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, a stump is obviously a tree that has been cut down, a tree that's been hewn down. Something happened to Jesse's household that it was just hewn down. Now, if you were here last week and the preceding weeks, you know what happened. The exile. Jeconiah, the the king, the, 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 the signet ring was taken off and thrown away. The Davidic dynasty crushed. The house of Jesse is now a stump. But even years before this happens, Isaiah prophesies from the stump of Jesse... A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Let me read you Jeremiah, years after that, Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 15 and 16. Now keep in mind, friends, to us, we hear branch and we just think, okay, branch, big deal, right? Keep in mind, the people of God living in an arid, uh, primarily desert land where oasis, water, and green was rare, a branch to them was a sign of hope was a sign of life, a sign of a new beginning, especially the, the seedling, the, the young branches. It meant that there was still hope to be had. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. 
So the reason people are flocking to the people of God, the nations, and saying, tell us, we want to go with you. The reason they're telling each other, hey, let's go to the, to, the, to, the, to the Lord, is because the branch has risen up and he rules from his royal throne. But here's the reality. As we learned last week, the return from exile was, was kind of a disappointment, right? In many ways, I mean, there was opposition. There was social ethnic tension the work was overwhelming. There were disappointments. And rather than face the reality of that, what, as we learned last week, what did they do? Instead of trying to fulfill God's purposes, they just tried to fulfill themselves in the lives that they had with whatever they could. And they turned their eyes off of what God called them to do, and they just kind of shifted to whatever it was they needed to do and whatever they wanted to do. But as we saw from Haggai, God loves us too much, he loved them too much, and he called them out on it. He says, don't try and be fulfilled in things that cannot fulfill you. These things were not meant to fulfill you, they never will. But the reality is, coming out of Babylon to their land, and things just did not live up to what they had wanted. And they were discouraged. Friends, it's true that while God will always take us back when we decide to return to him, he will always return to us, but it doesn't follow from that that things are always going to be how we want them to be or how we expect them to be, right? I mean, how many of you have always guessed perfectly God's plan for your life, right? It rarely turns out that way, and this is just another reason why in God's wisdom He's given us the local church, friends, because so much of our lives are not the things that we anticipated or expected. Young believers, if, if you are young and you're in this church, make relationships with older saints. Make relationships with older saints who can encourage you of God's faithfulness even over a lifetime of challenged expectations. Get to know those people that have walked with the Lord 10, 20, 30 years more than you have and help them get uh, recalibrate when your kids don't turn out the way you wanted, when the, the career that you thought was gonna fulfill you is just a daily grind, when maybe your marriage is not the source of life that you had always dreamt it would be when you were younger, help the older saints get you to see God's purposes in the midst of those expectations. Older saints, build relationships with these younger Christians around you so they can remind you of expecting good things from God, even though life might tell you differently. Right? That, that's why we have a church where we have all kinds of people mixing it up together. That's for our good. What happens if you just get all the young people hanging out and pooling their own naivety, right? What happens if you just get all the older people hanging out and just pooling all their kind of cynicism and crankiness, right? You don't want that, right? You, you, you want the, the young people with all that optimism to be shaped by all these older people with all that wisdom. And so we're not a naive, cranky church. We're a, a wise and optimistic church. That's what we need. And then we need to do that together because we live on this side of heaven. And on this side of heaven, our expectations are never met the way we desire them to be. And oftentimes our own desires are not what they ought to be. And so we need each other to balance out. And so Zechariah announces to God's people in the midst of this exciting return but disappointment that there's yet a final return from exile, and this isn't it. That wasn't it for them. That there is another return that is coming, but it's still in the future. 
But a major turn did take place in their lives, and God blessed them, and He's going to continue to bless them. But before that final full blessing would come, it would require the return of the king in his fullness, and and that's what we're turning to next in chapters 9 through 14. Now, the first half of Zechariah, chapters 1 through 8, was a review of their past and encouragement for their present situation. The second half, verse chapter 9 through 14, clearly is intended to inspire God's people for the future. And as I mentioned, the first eight chapters, like Haggai, get to God's purposes, rebuild the temple, restore the priesthood, get, get, it, get after what God has called you to do, and chapters 9 through 14 was painting a vision of, this is what's to come, this is what it's all about, don't get so caught up in what you're doing now, keep one eye on your current situation and one eye on where God is taking you. Now, if you've read Zechariah, or if you read him this week, you cannot miss the change in tone and the shift that play, takes place here in chapter 9. Not only in tone, but time. Because the phrase, on that day, appears 19 times in these six chapters. So, if, by word count alone, friends, if we back up and say, okay, by these two phrases that make up a chunk of Zechariah, 53 times the Lord of hosts 19 times on that day, you kind of get what his message is. The Lord of hosts, a reminder that God Almighty is the, the commander of heaven's armies. He's sovereign over creation and power and strength. On that day, there is a day that is coming, a time of reward, a time of judgment, a time of reckoning, of righting of wrongs, of balancing the scales, of fulfilling dreams, facing nightmares. It all depends on how we respond to the gospel and the Lord. Put them together, and the message is pretty clear, isn't it? Live today under the authority of the Lord of hosts in view of that day. Live today, and what you're doing, the opportunities and the resources and everything God has given you in light of that day. Now, I don't mean to say, because if you know anything about prophecy, that day could be the time when Jesus came. It could be later. The point is prioritize. You are a people with a purpose. Live like that matters. Live for the thing that matters. I love the reformer Martin Luther, 16th century reformer. He says, on my calendar, I only have two days, today and that day. And you know, in our, in our culture where we all got these and we got to schedule out like free time to see each other or whatever months in advance, I love the simplicity of how to live a right life. Yesterday doesn't matter. Well, you can't do anything about what happened yesterday. I cannot control tomorrow. I got today, and there's that day I got to think about. And this is why I tell my friends, you know, I don't have a bucket list. I don't know if you have a bucket list. I don't have a bucket list, right? Principally because there's no bucket, right? (laughs) There's no bucket. It's not like there's a terminal end to my life, and I got to do all these things because at this point, it's over. There's no bucket for me. There's no bucket for you if you're in Christ. There are millions and billions of days beyond that day, and everything I'm doing today, I want it to affect that day. Friends, the only list we should be looking and tracking is are the things that consume my time, energy, and resources now making a hill of beans a difference for the day that's coming? That, that, That time period, that age that's coming, if it's not, scratch that baby off your list and put something else to steward this day, right? 
These last six chapters, 9 through 14, they're basically two sermons that Zechariah preaches. The first sermon's chapter 9 through 11. The second is chapter uh, 12 through 14. Let me just tell you a little bit about his preaching because it's, it's really great, and we'll wrap it up. Both of these sermons, they both begin with a judgment on God's enemies, and then they end with a blessing on his people. So like chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, and then chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, they're judgments on God's enemies, and then a blessing to his people. Both of them point to the return of the king. In the first sermon, this king is called a shepherd as well, chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. In the second sermon, he gets an unusual title. He's called the one who's been pierced, chapter 12, verse 10. And he's also called a shepherd in chapter 13. So, so this may be confusing, but let me, let me kind of back up here. So we have this, this branch figure who's called a king, who's a shepherd, who's pierced. I think you're starting to see a picture I'm drawing here, but there's more. If you read in chapter 11 and chapter 12, this branch, this king, this shepherd, the one who's been pierced, gets rejected and struck down. Friends, who's, this, who's Zechariah describing? Well, we know he's describing, friends, because we read the Old Testament in light of the revelation we have in the New Testament. Friends, Zechariah, there, there's no other prophet quoted more often about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ than the prophet Zechariah. Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd. Christ was the one that was rejected. He is the one that has been pierced. Now, now go to chapter 12. I want you to see this because you can't make this stuff up. You got to see it in the text. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Here it is. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Stop right there now. You just have to ask, what in the world is Zechariah writing here? Why would a Jewish prophet, mind you, steeped and raised in monotheism, right? Place these words into God's mouth and speak it to the priests. Think about this, a Jewish prophet who's a monotheist speaking these words, when they look on me, this is a Yahweh speaking, whom they have pierced. Friends, in John chapter 19, when the the apostle records the crucifixion of Jesus, he includes the narrative of a Roman soldier shoving a spear into his side, and John quotes this verse and says this verse from Zechariah has been fulfilled. But think about the text here in Zechariah 12, when they look on me. Okay, first of all, who's doing the speaking here? Yahweh, the Lord, right? When they look on me, for you grammar fans, what tense of that, what what tense is that? Is that past, present, or future? It's future. When they look on me, on whom they have pierced. What tense is that? Past. Okay, so who's being spoken of here? Yahweh is being spoken of here, right? How can they pierce God? How can God be pierced unless he became flesh, right? How can God be pierced unless he became flesh? And here's the other thing. How could they look on him in the future, this one whom they pierced or killed in the past, 
only if he returns, only if he rises again. So, so we have this Jewish prophet who's a monotheist talking about, hey, I'm going to become flesh, and you're going to kill me, but don't worry, because you're going to see me again. And Zechariah is setting this all up. He's defining who the branch is, who the king is, who the pierced one is. He is telling them what's going on. In Zechariah 13, look at verse 1, Zechariah 13, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. The, the hymn writer William Cowper helps us understand how chapter 13 verse 1 works when he wrote that hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood in 1772. This is what he writes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And Zechariah tells us why in the end all things are going to be made right because he is pointing toward this future king, shepherd, branch, pierced one who is God himself who turns everything around. We know, but the New Testament tells us that because Jesus, this is possible because Jesus dealt, uniquely dealt, the only one who ever dealt with the thing that made everything go wrong in the first place. The Bible tells us that sin is the greatest isolation because it separates us from God, His creation, and one another. The Bible tells us that sin is the greatest form of exile because it casts us from His holy presence and everything that is good, true, and beautiful. The Bible tells us that sin is the greatest shame because our nakedness, our selfishness, our wickedness is fully exposed, and yet Christ was pierced for all of that. And so all those who take Jesus' death for their death, all those who take Jesus' life for their life could experience the true and ultimate renewal and restoration and return that, Mag that Haggai, that Zechariah, that the entire return from exile was merely just pointing to when God would make all things right because the king is on his throne. And Zechariah ends his prophecy with the return of the king which is for us still future as well. Let me conclude by reading that, chapter 14, starting in verse 4. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half shall move southward. For, so for those of you who like you know, the prophecy stuff, probably excited that in 2004, they found a massive fault line running where? Right under the Mount of Olives. Verse five, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Let's pray.
Father, we do not live in that day, but we do live today. Father, help us to heed the words that you have been faithfully, lovingly letting go out for centuries and centuries, that you are good, kind, and merciful, holy, just, and righteous. Help us to reject the cultural narratives of our day that we are the final authority, that we value autonomy above all else and realize your word is teaching us we were created for your glory and we find joy and fulfillment when we live for your glory. Thank you for Zechariah's words. Thank you for Hosea's words, for all the words of these prophets, these men who have been bold and faithful. We thank you for the fruit it will bear in our lives as individuals and as a church, and we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.